in the bulletin, which is almost right, but if you find Haggai, you are very close to Habakkuk, um, but it is that very well-known book that is just a few minor prophets away from the beginning of the New Testament. And um, I guess this is by word of warning, since Chris informed me that this was my initiation to have to preach this service, I decided to preach on the entire book of Habakkuk, although our scripture reading will only be the last three verses. But I'm not kidding, but that's more exciting than it might sound to some of you. But let's hear the word of the Lord together. Habakkuk chapter 3, starting in verse 17. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. Would you pray with me? God and Father, pray that you might teach us to have this prayer be our prayer as well. As we come before you this Thanksgiving day, Thanksgiving Eve, be with all of us sinners as we sit under your word. Be with me a sinner as I proclaim it. Pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So life can be a series of dress-up games. Have you ever noticed that? There's this pressure so often for us to masquerade as something that we aren't. We smile at our neighbors and max out our credit cards in order to try to convince them that, wow, they are successful, they are together, they are happy. We look in the mirror and grit our teeth and try to convince ourselves in the morning, right? We are successful, we are together. We are happy. It's a mask. It feels rigid and thin. Perhaps no time is that more apparent to me in my heart than a holiday like Thanksgiving. I count off my blessings, but almost all of them come with unspoken caveats. I'm thankful for this meal, but wish that there was this person here to share it. Thankful for my job, but maybe wish that I could be doing something else. Thankful. Um... For all of these things, but always with a but. Right? I hear it sometimes when, when we sit around our table and we talk about our kids. And, um, you know, and we're talking about all of our children's accomplishments. And not every child gets named. Or when we look at across the decorations in our dining room. And we're wondering how we're going to pay for it. Or whether we're going to be there next year to enjoy it. It's not that we shouldn't give think, thanks for the good things we have. We absolutely should, and this is the time of year for us to do that. But too often, we buy the idea that giving thanks in this way requires pretending. That Thanksgiving is a mask that I'm supposed to wear. That my heart might be breaking and my body might be aching, but what I'm supposed to do is put all of that aside and just give thanks. And that can rob me of my ability to really be thankful. I feel unable to be thankful in the broken world where all of us actually live. So I try to act like it's this fairy tale instead, right? But the problem with that, when we live in that fairy tale world, is that we all know that it's a fairy tale. There is no happily ever after in this life for any of us. Which is why I love this passage from the prophet Habakkuk. And really the whole book. Right? I think about 
our Thanksgiving customs, and they would usually be to say something like this, because our bellies are full and our plates are heaping, because our houses are warm and our checkbooks are fat, so we rejoice in the Lord. But Habakkuk says something different, something radical in the text we read this morning. He says, though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, Though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I hear those words and I say, yeah, I want that. I want a joy and a thanksgiving that doesn't require pretending. I want to be in a place where I can say, I'm stressed about finances, I'm worried about the future, my kids are far from perfect, and my wife has cancer, and most days I feel like I'm just faking it, yet I'm thankful, and I rejoice. I want that. For me, that's always followed with the question then of how. How can I say that? How can Habakkuk say what he just says? And really, the whole book of Habakkuk is the process of him wrestling with God to arrive at that point. What we read this evening was the last three verses of the whole book. Let me read you the first three verses. How long, Lord, Habakkuk says to God, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abound. The world is messed up, Habakkuk is saying. God, where are you? And what we see between those verses and the ones we read tonight is really God's answer. God's answer to that complaint and our answer to how we can rejoice and give thanks without pretending. So this evening I want us to just look briefly at that answer. What we see is God showing Habakkuk three truths, three realities that allow him in the face of what he says in those verses we just read, to say what he says at the end of the book. Three truths for giving thanks when life is hard. First, God says that he will establish peace. We can give thanks because God will ultimately establish peace. So in chapter 1, Habakkuk gives this first complaint that we just read. Israel's a mess, he says. It's full of greed and wickedness. The rich are oppressing the poor. And Habakkuk asks God, how long is this going to keep on going? How long will injustice reign? And God gives him an immediate answer in chapter 1. He says, look, their day's going to come. Even now, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonian Empire, and they're going to come, and those who set themselves up to oppress my people are going to fall. Which is an answer, but not enough of one for Habakkuk. Then at the beginning of chapter 2, he says, all right, sure, that's something, but it doesn't really solve the problem. Because Babylon's pretty terrible too. That temporary judgment won't actually fix things. It won't make the world the way it should be. And then God comes back and says this. He says in Habakkuk 2, 3, For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it lingers, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. Which is to say, hold on. Justice is ultimately coming. Not right now. Not in this age. Not in this punishment that I'm bringing down right now. But ultimately, justice will come. And how? God answers a little bit later. He says in verses 13 and 14, has not the Almighty determined that the people's labor is only fuel for the fire, that the nations exhaust themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. 
There is a day coming, says the Lord, when everything that is broken will be made new, when God will come in power and his glory will surround us as if we're swimming in an ocean of it, when the world really will be healed and everything comes good. Part of Habakkuk's hope and ours rests in the fact that while there is sadness right now in history, we know sadness is not the end of the story. That at the end of it, Christ will return and the dead will raise and every tear will be dried by God himself. And there will be a day of thanksgiving, a future day when we won't feel like we need to wear a mask. No pretending. So part of how we can rejoice is by knowing that we have a sure hope in that day. That we live now looking forward to it. As God puts it in Habakkuk, the righteous person will live by faith. In chapter 2, verse 4. We give thanks and rejoice because we have faith that that day is coming. Now look, that in itself doesn't take away the pain. All right? Nothing I'm going to say is going to take it away fully. But it doesn't. And there's more to the answer too. I want to say that now because as we think about applying that first truth, I don't want you to think that it's just that there's some pie in the sky in the future that makes the bitter taste of the present bearable. But the reality of our future hope is important to us living in the present. Here's why. In this world and in this age, there is immense beauty and immense pain. Right? That's just a fact of life. That the question our hearts ask is which of those is more true, the beauty or the pain? Is the beauty or the pain the thing that truly has power, that truly defines our lives? And I think, if you're like me, that your inclination is to say that it's the pain. That the pain is the most true thing. At least in my darker moments. That's how I feel. Like the happiness is just temporary. And the sadness is the thing that's going to be eternal. And that's part of why giving thanks can feel like a lie. Because I feel like it's just superficial. How can I give thanks for turkey and stuffing and laughter and sunshine when we live in a world where people die? People do horrible things to each other before they die. How can I give thanks in a world where women starve and children are abused? How can I pretend like the beauty matters when there's so much pain and it's so deep? And that's a real human struggle. But what God's promise for the future reminds us is that while in this age there is immense beauty and immense pain, it is the beauty that will ultimately endure. The beauty is what is eternal. And the pain is somehow in the scope of eternity, even though it is deep in this life, a light and momentary suffering on the road to glory. Here's the truth of it. On the new heavens and the new earth, we will still eat that turkey and stuffing. We will still laugh together, and the glory of God will shine brighter than the sun. Those things are true now and where we're headed, but the pain and the darkness will be no more. It's defeated. It will pass away. So God will bring peace. But that's not the sum of Habakkuk's hope, and it isn't the sum of our answer. Another part of how Habakkuk can end the book saying the things he does is that God has worked salvation. God has worked salvation. So Habakkuk in chapter 3 turns from looking forward to God's future justice to looking back at what he's already done. Here's what he says in chapter 3, verse 2. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. So Habakkuk recalls the works of salvation God has done for Israel in the past. 
how they faced oppression and God came forth to rescue them. As he puts it a little later in that chapter, from verse 13, you came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness. You stripped him from head to foot. So Habakkuk isn't just trusting in God's future deliverance. He's also finding hope in something God has already done for his people. As we reflect on the story of the Bible, what's always remarkable to me is the fact that from our vantage point, Habakkuk ain't seen nothing yet, right? That if he can say, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, I will be joyful in God, my Savior, then how much more can we say that? We who have seen God himself in Jesus Christ work salvation for us. On one level, that's just a reminder that it, Jesus and God's salvation are the central things we should be thankful for on a holiday like Thanksgiving, right? That when we number our blessings, chief among them must be the unimaginable, undeserved grace of Jesus Christ, forgiving our sins, being welcomed by God, having fellowship with him through the Holy Spirit. And no pecan pie, no matter how perfect or how much I love it, could hold a shadow to that kind of cause for Thanksgiving. But more than that, God's salvation isn't just an item that we add on the Thanksgiving list to help us feel thankful. It actually changes the way we experience those dark and sad things in the present. Look again at that prayer in verse 13. God came out in Jesus to deliver us, his people. Not just deliver us in some future sense from the presence of sin, but to deliver us now from its power and its condemnation and its alienation. God came out in Jesus to save us, to actually deliver us from the control of darkness and deliver us into the kingdom of light. God came out in Jesus to actually crush the head of the serpent, to defeat Satan, the true king of that land of wickedness, to break his power and bind his rule of the nations. God came out in Jesus to strip bare the forces of evil and show the world how fleeting and weak they truly are. That in Jesus God has, as Colossians 2.15 puts it, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in the cross. God's salvation doesn't just promise the end of pain someday. It reveals to us a reality about the hard things in life today. That though they still wound us, And though they still cause our hearts to ache, they do not have ultimate power over us anymore. That in Jesus, God has defeated them. They don't get to define us. The power of Christ is in us. We are defined by being sons and daughters of God. Which again, doesn't make all of the hurt go away. But it again teaches us that we can give thanks in the face of that pain. Because it is a defeated I could maybe help that bring that home a little there was a point in my life where I was obsessed um, with I mean I've always been obsessed with history and things but I I read a bunch of these letters and memoirs from World War One because I got really interested in that war and um, something I found interesting so trench warfare right which is what happened in World War One it was one of the most miserable ways you could ever imagine fighting in a war it was constant threat of death and shells following all around you. People went crazy just from the constant, like, rhythmic impact of the shells. And there was starvation, and the food was terrible, and disease was rampant, and there was gas that would flood the trenches and could kill you. And they were wet because they were down in the ground, so wet that people's feet literally started to rot because they never got dry. It was terrible. 
You can tell that in a lot of the letters and memoirs that you read from that time, that it's a terrible place to be. But something kind of happens right in the last like nine months of those letters and memoirs, that in the late spring and summer and early autumn of 1918, their tenor starts to change, right? People suddenly seem excited and encouraged, and you don't find any of the complaining about their situation anymore. The thing is about that, though, nothing changed about those soldiers' conditions at that point in the war. They were still fighting in trenches, and the artillery shells were still falling all around them, and mustard gas could still kill them, and their feet were still getting trench rot. The difference was that their side, they now could realize, was winning. The Austro-Hungarian Empire and the German armies were collapsing, and that they were advancing, and that they had They were fighting still. They were still in those situations, but their story had changed because now they were fighting a defeated foe. And that is what the triumph of Jesus does for us. It doesn't change the fact that life is full of pain, but it tells us the truth about that pain's ultimate fate, that it isn't bigger, that we are on the side that will ultimately win, that Jesus has already won, and that in him, while the The death throes of the serpent will hurt us. His head's been cut off. So we can rejoice and give thanks when life is hard because God will work peace and because God has worked salvation. We have a future hope and a past victory. But as we keep saying, it still hurts in the present, right? All of that can be true and we can still struggle to give thanks because in this moment we are still in the sadness. The enemy isn't finished dying. Our tears haven't yet been dried. There's one final answer I think Habakkuk gives, and that is that God is with us. God is with us. In the first place, right, I've kind of summarized the book for you, but, but just step back and think about what I just summarized for a moment. This is Habakkuk having a conversation with God, right? Coming to the Lord and saying, Lord, what is wrong with you? Why are you doing these things? This is how I feel. What is going on? And God listens and responds. One of the contrasts Habakkuk draws is between God and an idol, something that a human being makes. So for example, in chapter 2, verses 18 and 19, he says this, of what value is an idol carved by a craftsman or an image that teaches lies? For the one who makes it trusts in his own creation. He makes idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to wood, come to life. Or to lifeless stone, wake up. Can it give guidance? It is covered with gold and silver. There is no breath in it. Which is to say on the surface that idols are stupid things to worship, right? And while we don't make idols from wood or stone anymore, we're still certainly prone to idolatry. But that isn't the ultimate point. God's ultimate point is to contrast that idol with the living God. Because then in verse 20, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Which is to say God isn't something we've created. God is the one who created us. He isn't some silent piece of stone. He is so real that somehow the earth itself is silenced before his presence. That he exists, he's real, and he is with Habakkuk, and he is with us as his people. As Habakkuk says at the very end of our reading, the very last verse of the whole book, the sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread the heights. 
The sovereign Lord, the God who exists, who made heaven and earth, is our strength. That he actually meets with us and actually supports us and sustains us in the midst of the sorrow. And that's the final answer to how we can give thanks when life is hard. That God is with us. That he is giving us the strength to endure. That's just as, that just as we know that, that, that pain has been beaten, right? And that it will be beaten in Jesus' return. We can live in the in-between because Jesus is here to support us in the present, too. He's here, and so we can endure. One of the most toxic things about thinking that Thanksgiving needs to be a time for pretending is that it tells us we need to bury our hurts in order to rejoice. That we need to stuff our sadness, sort of, as we're stuffing our faces. And that's toxic because God's answer to our pain is not to hide it, but rather to show it forth, to come like Habakkuk with our pain and our grief, to come to Jesus and in him find the strength to endure it. One of the great American lies is that our job is just to kind of do it on our own, right? To stiffen our back and grit our teeth and get her done. And that works fine, I guess, if you're like plowing a field or building a house, right? But that is a terrible way to approach our sadness. We're not meant to carry our burdens on our own. God gives us each other, yes, his people to help carry them. Even more than that, though, he gives us himself. That in meeting with him, we find true strength and real support day by day as we walk through them. That God says to us, when we say, I cannot bear this weight, I cannot do this on my own. He says, come and meet with me and I will support you. And he does. Again, not that it isn't still hard. But that it is something that we can do in the present in him. As we rest on his work of salvation for us. And as we look forward to his work of restoring all things. So tomorrow, give thanks for all the good gifts. Thank God for the food and family and freedom and pumpkin pie and the roof over your heads. And all the other things that we list off at Thanksgiving. But don't do that in a way that, think, that makes you think you have to not list the other things. That though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vine, yet we can rejoice. We can rejoice because we know the future, that God will ultimately triumph over all that is broken in the world. We can rejoice because we know the past, that in Jesus God has triumphed over all that is dark and painful in the world. And we can rejoice because we know that in the present, right now, God is with us. So own your joys and own your sorrows this Thanksgiving. Give thanks for the one Give thanks to God for meeting you and carrying you through the other. Because he is faithful and true. And he will sustain us until all that is broken comes untrue. Would you pray with me? God and Father, I just acknowledge to you that there is a lot of pain and sadness in this life. As well as a lot of goodness and beauty. I give thanks that the beauty is what will ultimately endure. And I give thanks that you meet us now in the midst of the pain and carry us. Pray all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ, in whom you came and met with us. You yourself suffered beside us and suffered for us, so that in you we might find true healing. Pray in his name. Amen. Stand with me and sing.